All right. Welcome back to the listener's commentary on the letter of Paul to his colleague in ministry, Titus. The listener's commentary is a listener-supported, crowd-funded Bible teaching ministry that is made possible and able to be given away for free because dozens of people donate faithfully to this ministry. So thanks a ton for your support. And you can join the team of supporters. If you've been blessed by this ministry, impacted in some way, you can swing over to listenerscommentary.com, click the Give button, and you can set up a one-time or a recurring monthly donation right there. So let me say in advance, thanks a ton to all you who already donate and to those of you who donate in the future. Thanks a ton for your support. All right, in this recording, we're going to be looking at Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. And in a lot of ways, this passage probably should have, definitely could have remained connected to the previous recording because it really uh, connects logically to it as the rationale or maybe the basis, if you want to call it that, for what Paul instructs Titus to teach in the churches on the island of Crete. So at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul says to Titus, But as for you, proclaim the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. And then at the end of chapter 2, in verse 15, Paul restates this by saying, These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. No one should disregard you. So this whole chapter, chapter 2, is really one big unit of thought, and that must not be missed. And the focus of that unit of thought is on how Titus is supposed to instruct people in the churches there on Crete to conduct themselves now that they're part of the new family of Jesus. And so Paul has just given in 2, 1 through 10 instructions to older men and older women, younger women and younger men. He's told Titus that he's supposed to be a model of all of this. He's even given some instructions to slaves themselves who have come to faith in Jesus. How should they act? And all of this is driven by a key concern to make the gospel attractive rather than their behavior bringing shame and dishonor on the gospel and on the church and, by extension, therefore, bringing trouble on the church. And so all of this goes together as one big unit of thought. And verses 11 through 15 that we'll look at in this recording, it comes in as providing the rationale for why they ought to act the way that Paul is instructing Titus to teach them to act. So why should they change their behavior and conduct themselves in this way? That is, why should they... And By extension, we, why should we live differently and even care about uh, the impact that our behavior and the gospel has on society at large and how they view us? Why should we be driven by this motivation to try to adorn the doctrine of God, as Paul says in verse 14? Well, that's where 2, 11 through 15 comes in. It comes in as the basis or the rationale. So it's directly and logically connected to the previous recording, but we broke it out for the sake of space and time. And so let's not miss that connection as Paul here in 2, 11 through 15 begins to provide the rationale for why they and why we should behave the way Paul is instructing Titus to teach us to behave. Here's what what Paul says beginning in verse 11. He says, for, there we go, that's the explanation, the rationale, the basis, for, here's why we should act differently, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. 
when we hear the phrase grace of God, it's really easy for us to think in terms of things like the doctrine of grace or the, you know, the teaching of grace. In fact, I had a whole course in graduate school just called the doctrine of grace for three hours a week for 15 weeks. We talked about the doctrine of grace. And what we need to do is remember exactly what grace is and why Paul uses that phrase. And so when he says the grace of God, we're talking about a personal action from God himself, one person, to another person. Grace is God's kindness that is undeserved. It's his active favor that he gives to people, not because they've earned it or benefited it in any sort of way. It's undeserved kindness. It's undeserved active favor. And as I noted, it's the expression and action of one person towards another. So it's personal. And in this case, it's God's action towards us. The grace of God has appeared. And when he says it has appeared, that doesn't mean that there was no grace in the Old Testament. God certainly showed plenty of grace during the Old Testament. Paul's point is that grace came in the flesh in the person of Jesus, right? In the person of Jesus, this grace of God came fully and completely embodied in Jesus himself. As the Apostle John puts it in his gospel, John chapter 1, verse 16, he says this, that of his fullness, we have all received even grace upon grace. And so that's what Paul is talking about when he says the grace of God has appeared. It has come fully and completely in the flesh, in the person of Jesus. And this grace, he says in verse 11, makes salvation available to all people. This grace brings uh, salvation that's big enough and strong enough for everybody, for all people, if only they would welcome it. And then Paul continues in verse 12 by describing the impact this grace has had on us who have welcomed it. Look at verse 12. He says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people and instructing us. Here's the second part, verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and in a godly manner in the present age. Notice the way this verse begins, verse 12, instructing us. Literally, this grace has appeared, instructing us so that denying we should live. And so this grace instructs us, and the aim of that instruction is that we should live in a certain manner. And he lists off several things that this grace instructs us in. It instructs us, first of all, to get rid of some things, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. So deny a spirit of not recognizing the presence of God and not living in a devout way devoted to God and in a way that would please God. And get rid of, deny worldly desires, desires of this broken, fallen world that are arranged against God's desires and God's ambitions for human flourishing. So deny the those kinds of desires and those kinds of behaviors, and it instructs us to live sensibly, 
righteously and in a godly way. Um, and so we should live sensibly. This word has been used three times already in this chapter for the various groups above, right? It means reasonable, being level-headed, using good judgment, sensibly. So we should live that way. We should live righteously, that is, doing what is right uh, before God and towards people. So live righteously and then live in a godly sort of way. That is, in a God-pleasing or God-honoring sort of way. That's how we should live. And then he says we should do that in this present age. And this really speaks of something that's central to New Testament theology. We've talked about it in a number of places here on the listener's commentary. In fact, I have a document that I can add to the study hub that helps us understand this, where what Paul's talking about is uh, there's this overlap between the ages. Um, there is the present age, and then there is the age to come. And in New Testament theology, and Paul's thinking here is, we live currently in the present age, but we live in the present age as those who have been affected by, uh, birthed into by the new birth, the age to come. And so there's this overlap of the ages between the present age that Paul even calls in Galatians 1.4 the present evil age. Um, and yet the age to come is broken into this present age by the coming of Jesus, by the coming of the Spirit, and what God is now doing in and through us by his Spirit as we seek to please Jesus. And so we live during the overlap of the ages. And when Paul says the present age, it's essentially what the Apostle John means by the word the world. When Paul, when John says the world, and or like the world is passing away, the Apostle John will say in his letters, right? Well, that's essentially the same thing that Paul means by the present age. So we live in the present age that is passing away, but we don't live here in this present age according to the values and desires of the present age. We live differently according to the values and aims and desires of the age to come. That's what grace has instructed us, and that's why we live differently. And so as we live in this present age, our focus is actually on the age to come. So look what Paul says in verse 13. Paul says, looking for. So the grace of God has appeared. Um, it is instructing us uh, so that we'll deny ungodliness and worldly desires. It's instructing us so that we'll live sensibly, righteously, and in a godly manner. And while we live here, we're looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. A couple notes there out of verse 13. When he says, looking for, the word in Greek is actually stronger, uh, to me at least, than looking for. Looking for just doesn't communicate the sense of this particular word, which is more like waiting for, anticipating, expecting. It's the kind of thing that a kid does as Christmas draws near and they know Christmas is coming and they're waiting for it and expecting it. That's what looking for means. And so we're looking for, expecting, anticipating the blessed hope and appearing of the glory. 
And even though there are two descriptive phrases here, the grammar indicates that this refers to one event, one event that could be described as the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory. In fact, you could almost translate it, the blessed hope, that is the glorious appearing or the appearing of the glory, right? That's the idea that these two things are one package deal, the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory. And when we talk about hope, We have to make sure we hear it in the full sense that this word meant uh, to the biblical writers. It didn't mean a wish. Gee, I sure hope that something works out. Hope uh, means a confident expectation. It is something that you know is going to happen. You're expecting it with confidence and you're just waiting for it to happen. And so our hope is full of blessedness. That's the idea. It's a blessed hope, a hope that's going to bring blessedness beyond our wildest dreams, and our hope consists of the appearing of the glory of Jesus Christ. That's whose glory we're waiting for. The idea is that Jesus will appear in all his glory. And notice this phrase, before he mentions Christ Jesus, he says, our great God and Savior. Some have suggested that maybe it's referring to both God, the Father, and our Savior, uh, Christ Jesus. But grammatically, there's actually one definite article in the Greek, one the, that holds the whole phrase together. And nowhere else is God the Father joined with Jesus when describing the second coming. So when he says, our great God and Savior, he's referring to Jesus Christ as our great God and Savior. That's the one we're eagerly waiting for. We're looking for him to show up in all his glory and bring uh, all the blessedness that he's promised to his people. And then Paul continues by describing what Jesus did to give us this hope and to make us his people. So verse 14 continues, who, that is Jesus, our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, King Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, eager for good deeds. And so notice that in order to give us this hope, uh, Jesus gave himself for us. That's what he did. He gave himself, laying down his life for us. In fact, the apostle Paul actually speaks very personally using the this same sort of phrase in Galatians chapter 2.20 when Paul says that I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ live, lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live for the Son of God. And then he says, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the idea. And this is what Jesus did for us. And this fact of giving himself actually becomes the very pattern that we who are his followers are supposed to imitate. We're supposed to give up our rights for the sake of others, Philippians 2. Husbands are supposed to lay down their lives for the sake of their wives like Jesus did for them. Uh, this is why in 2 Corinthians, the apostle Paul says, uh, authentic ministry entails suffering and self-giving, not self-promotion and self-serving. Because this is what Jesus did for us. He gave himself. And he gave himself here in verse 14 specifically to redeem us from every lawless deed. And the word redeem always involves the picture of paying some sort of price to set someone free. Well, the price that Jesus paid to set us free was the price of his own life. He gave himself as the redemption price to set us free. And what did he set us free from here? 
Well, he redeemed us or liberated us from every lawless deed. Such deeds held us captive. We were in bondage to every lawless deed. And Jesus gave himself so that he could liberate us from both the power as well as the penalty of those lawless deeds. And not only did he give himself to redeem us, he also gave himself to purify us, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. And so Jesus' self-giving death brought us redemption, and it also cleanses us and sets us apart as his own. Now now we are his, his own people, purified, clean, belonging to him. And this is really important to our self-understanding as followers of Jesus. Jesus is not just forming a collection of individuals, but, as it says here, a people to purify for himself a people for his own possession. So not a collection of individuals, but a whole people. And what that reminds us is that our relationship with Jesus may be personal, but it's not individual. We're part of a whole people who belong to Jesus. We don't belong to ourselves. We're a people for his own possession. And therefore, our life isn't our own. We can't make up our own choices and do our own thing. We can't do whatever we want because we belong to him. And so we don't live for ourselves. Rather, we're eager for good deeds, for what Jesus deems as good and right. That's what we're eager to do. And that word eager means literally zealous, full of energy and devotion to good deeds. So that there in verse 11 through 14 is really the basis or the rationale for everything Paul wants Titus to teach to the followers of Jesus in the various cities on the island of Crete. We've got the basis here of what God has done for us in Christ. That's what motivates a changed living. And so at this point, Paul simply restates in verse 15 how he began the chapter in verse 1. This is the bookend to the chapter. And so he says to Titus in verse 15, these things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. No one is to disregard you. And so Titus is called to teach the the churches and the Christians there on the island of Crete to live the way they're supposed to live based on what Paul has just said in verses 11 through 14. And so before we leave this section, let me just Let me just offer a few simple reflections that I think are terribly important. Hinted at already in my notes as we went through these verses. But the first is this, the grace of God and how central the grace of God is to us in Christ. That in Jesus, we have received grace upon grace. That we are his people, not because of anything good that we have done, not because we deserve it or because we're better than others. We are God's people because the grace of God has appeared. It has come to us fully fleshed out in the person of Jesus. God is a person who is gracious and compassionate and merciful and kind, and he has given us his favor because of who he is and what he did for us in Jesus. And so we stand in grace. We stand being um, favored by God because of his kindness and his great love for us, love that has stooped down to help us up 
and stoop down to clean up the mess we have made. That's the grace of God. And so everything we have and everything we are is a gift of God's kindness and grace. The second part of that that we see here in these verses is that the grace of God that rescues undeserving sinners like you and I, the grace of God doesn't allow us just to continue to self-destruct by our own behavior. The grace of God actually teaches us to deny ungodliness and teaches us to live in a godly sort of way. And so grace instructs us in godliness. It leads us into the kind of life we're actually created and designed to live as human beings, as those who are in the image of God. And so grace teaches godliness. And so grace rescues us from our ungodliness, and grace leads us into and teaches us godliness. And thus, we live differently in this world. We live differently in this present age because of what God has done for us by his grace in and through the person of Jesus Christ.